I know I've told this story. I'm pretty sure I told it here. It's just... Um, guy injured his arm in a sporting event and playing football out on the park and his buddy took him to the hospital uh, to get uh, to get it looked at he wasn't sure if it was uh, you know broken or what so he took him to the hospital and uh, when he drove him up he let him out and uh, he walked up to the building and uh, there was two doors and one said emergency Another one said non-emergency. And he said, well, you know, I'm in pain, but I don't... So he went into the non-emergency. He was a tough guy. And so he went in there, and uh, immediately there was two more doors. And it said male or female. So he went into the, the male. Um, and guess what? There was two more doors in there. And it said external or internal injuries. Well, external, you know, he injured his arm, so... And in the external, and and then, yeah, and you believe it, there are two more doors, insured or non-insured. <laughs> well, you know, he's a young guy. He didn't have insurance, so he went in the non-insured door. And can you believe when he went through that door, he was out in the parking lot of the hospital. <laughs> Sounds like a true story, doesn't it? It might be. And his buddy he was just coming up, and he like, gosh, that was quick. He said, did you, did you get any help in there? He said, no. He said, they didn't help me at all. He said, but man, that place is really organized, you know. And I, thought, I always liked that story because sometimes that's the thing about churches is that we put a lot of emphasis upon, you know, strategies and emphasis and organization. But the real issue is a church, are we doing what is important to Jesus? Are we helping people, Right? If we're not, then let's go home and watch Meet the Press. I mean, you know, go to breakfast. Or, I mean, we're really wasting, we're just kind of, you know, if we're going to just have a club, let's meet at, you know, an evening time instead of Sunday morning. You know, why do all this? But I hope that Grace Church, among all the things that we've done in 25 years and hope to do, I hope that we are a place that uh, we we actually help people. And I believe that one of the ways... The primary way we do that, uh, and we have counseling ministries. We have again, we have lots of different things that go on. But to me, as a, as a pastor, the conviction I have is the primary way that we help each other and help people is that we put an emphasis upon the Word of God. We believe, as a church body, that that ultimately is the way that is that real help comes for us, that how I grow, how I know God. If I want God to speak to me, I open his word. Uh, that, to me, is where real help is found, and that's why we do what we do. Uh, that's why we put emphasis upon this time together. And one of the ways that um, I uh, appreciate and am thankful and really convicted of how Scripture is God's word among many, many ways, is, is how real the Bible is. You've heard me say this before, and we've talked about the case for Christ and different subjects, is that if I was going to invent a religion, and I was going to have a book, you know, that was going to be my book, right? You know, it was going to be my, 
whatever, sayings or whatever, or my story of how I have a, you know, know God, and if you want to know, you know, my cult, all right, Tim's cult, we'll call it Tim's cult, but I'm going to start Tim's cult or whatever, and I'm going to make a book that doesn't show any flaws about me or anybody else, I I mean, it's just going to be a per, I mean, there's not going to be any, you know, skeletons in the closet, it's going to just create this false image, kind of like if some of you or most of you may remember, you know, when we talked about uh, some of the, uh, like, Soviet Union and those. I remember when Chernobyl, when that meltdown of that nuclear plant, and uh, I was over in, uh, uh, they call it in Kiev, or Kiev, as they say it, in the Ukraine, where, where it took place, is that it was about two to three weeks before the government actually told the people what had happened. I remember people who were there at the time, because Chernobyl wasn't very far from Kiev, and uh, they said, yeah, we woke up one morning and there was just this dust everywhere, kind of this yellowy dust. And we didn't know what it was. We we're sweeping it, you know, and just, it's nuclear radiation, you know. And of course, because they, you know, the government, you know, they wanted to put a picture perfect image of the Soviet Union that never has any flaws or mistakes. Well, the Bible, I mean, it's, it's warts and all in there. You know, I wouldn't have concluded David's adultery, you know, Abraham and lying and, I mean, all sorts of different things. And when we come to Psalm 77, it's very real of the writer of this psalm. His name is Asaph. It wasn't David. Asaph, as we'll see in a minute, was somebody appointed by David. But as we walk through this, this is a very real, I mean, we really, I can really relate to this because this, uh, this guy, I mean, he's, he's struggling to see God in the dark. You know what I mean by that? I mean, the old writers years ago talked about the dark night of the soul. And I think Christians, um, I, I would say it would be a rare person here who in some form or measure uh, doesn't go through periods of, and when I say depression, I'm not talking about clinical depression, and that's very real, okay? I'm not, but we go through anxiety, we go through pressure, we go through just melancholy you know, we'll call it the blues. Well, I mean, whatever you want to put on it. Sometimes you just feel like crud. That's a Hebrew word, crud. You know, right? I mean, we just feel like we just we, and we don't, and here's sometimes what ha- is we don't know why. That's what's troubling sometimes. We think, well, if I could just get this job, if I could just marry this person, if I can just live in this house, if I can just drive that car. How many of you know that that doesn't do it? That doesn't do it. I mean, it gives you a little temporary joy, but then you get that monthly bill from, right, Regal or whoever you buy it from, and you're like, oh, depression sets in. But in all seriousness, we, we go through that, and, and unfortunately, I don't think this is as true today as it was maybe 50 years ago in Christianity, but there was, there was a time, maybe my parents' generation, in which you didn't hear a lot of talk about depression and these some of these subjects from the you know because really you know just buck up huh memorize more scripture you know you need to come to church more uh you need to tithe more jim you know you get joy in tithing i know i mean you know in other words what is it all based on just you know you just need to do more and you kind of walk away and you do more and guess what you're still kind of back where you're at um you know, sometimes we want to look at Scripture and we want to find that, what I call that magic bullet. If I can just buy that book. I'm always suspicious anytime a title by anybody, it says, Five Keys to Happiness. 
There ain't no five keys, right? I mean, there's one key, and that's Jesus. We know that. But you know what? Even I'm happy in Jesus, I still have to walk this earth as a sinner saved by grace. I still have to deal with stuff. I still have to deal with children that don't always do what I want them to do. And again, that's not a commentary on any present issues. As of 11 o'clock, that's, that's not present. But I mean, you know, hey, you know, I'm a real parent. Deal with those things. I mean, things just don't life. doesn't always go the way we want. So what do we do? And, and sometimes we really get into a place where we're just kind of in, here's another uh, Hebrew word, we get into a real dark funk of anxiety. And we just... You know, and we kind of go through the motions, but really when we're laying there at night, when we're waking up in the morning, we're just like, God, I don't want to do this. I just want to pull the covers over my head and just call in a sick day. Now, I won't ask for any hands here, but I would be shocked that the majority have not had that. And you might even feel that right now. You just feel like, yeah, that's where I'm at. Well, again, as a church and as a body of Christ, the Word of God uh, is an encouragement to this. And I believe this morning that Psalm 77 has been an encouragement to me, and I want it to be an encouragement to you. But before we do that, why don't we pray before we look at the Word of today. Gracious God, we, uh, we, are, we are a needy people, and we need you to uh, speak to your people today. Lord, we need you to just uh, feed us today from your, your Word. Lord, I, I pray that if there are those here that either really do not have that relationship with Christ if they're unsure, Lord, I pray that today your Holy Spirit will draw them, show them their need, and show them that, Lord, their ultimate need is only in you. Help us today. Open your word. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation from my heart be acceptable in your sight. Give us ears to hear what the Spirit says to the church today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Well, in Psalm 77, did a light just go out or am I having a stroke? Okay, all right, I just want to make sure. Um, In Psalm 77, there's three observations this morning, and as I said, rather than reading it all at once, we're just going to kind of walk through it. And as I said, I hope you have your Bibles if you have it. Um, you know, by phone, or if you have it in, again, the way Paul carried it, leather-bound with index tabs. Uh, either way, um, that's a, I'm, I'm kidding you, all right? Lighten up, all right? Come on, folks. Don't, don't sit on me, you know, but, uh, uh, but, but engage with Scripture, okay? And uh, it's always good to have something to take a note in because, again, if we, if we really believe that God speaks to us through the Word, and uh, this is a time that you've invested to come, and, and I hope that you're here to say, yeah, I, I really need the Word today. Then, then, then be a person who's proactive and have a pen, have a piece of paper, have something that you're going to, on your phone, you can take notes. I mean, do something to say, you know what, I want to remember, I want to hear this, and I want to uh, anticipate God saying something that I need. Okay, so let's just kind of walk through this. First of all, I want you to notice in Psalm 77 the trouble that holds the Christian, holds the believer. Look with me in verses 1 through 4 as, uh, as I'm going to read that from the ESV. Psalm 77, 1 through 4, I cry aloud to God, aloud to God and he will hear me. 
In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. Selah. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. That's in the Bible. That's uh, maybe something that other folks would tell you. It might be a false confession or something. But listen, that's real stuff. That's in the Bible. This guy is troubled in his soul. He's troubled deep down to the point that he can't even hold his eyelids open. I mentioned to you uh, the author of this psalm is Asaph. There's, there's five different Asaphs in the Old Testament, but this one in particular was appointed by David, and he's attributed to being the author of most of the Psalms. But this Asaph was appointed by David, and he had a job to sound the bronze cymbals during uh, the ceremony when the ark was brought in to the new tabernacle. And these are in First Chronicles. You can look at the reference. Uh, David also appointed this author... Uh, to serve by giving constant, this is a quote, constant praise and thanks to the Lord God of Israel. That was his job. He was part of the worship team. He was a Levite. Uh, That means, if you know Old Testament, that they exclusively among the tribes had the job that was dedicated to worship, the musicians, the poets, the composers, the priests. Uh, One passage in 1 Chronicles Uh, suggests that this Asaph was uh, almost like an inner circle prophet to King David, okay? Uh, He had four sons, the Bible tells us. They were all Levites. They all became ministers of worship in Israel. He was apparently a good dad, not like Eli and some of those guys that, you know, were, were lousy had lousy sons, but apparently all the record is he was an honorable person. Why do I tell you all that? Because Again, what are we talking about? We're talking about, uh, we'll use the word depression. This, this was a guy, in our vernacular, he was a saved man. He was a believer. He was in ministry. And yet, what is he writing? I can't even hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled. You hear what I'm saying? This is a guy that from all external looks should have a trouble-free life. But what is he putting on the pages of eternal Scripture? He says, I am troubled, God. So troubled, I don't even know if I I can stand life itself. You see, again, Christians are not immune from suffering. And anybody tells you that once you become a believer, you're going to be immune from suffering for the rest of your life is just not telling you the truth. I found that sometimes, and you can, maybe this is more relevant to our brothers and sisters over in North Korea or some of the countries of great oppression, not only, I mean, that's the opposite. In fact, some believers in Iran, you, you've signed your death warrant, you become a believer, right? And uh, the root of depression, we understand theologically, is sin, that's the universal cause of all of our, this anxiety, the promise of Scripture and, and eternity with Christ. In Revelation, it speaks about in that New Jerusalem, 
that when Jesus rules and reigns, it speaks about that eternal glory that we'll be a part of. And you remember where it says, and he will wipe every tear from their eye. But yet, in between, in between right now, there are tears. Right? There are tears and there's pain. The verses 1 through 2 speaks about these tears. I cried aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me in the day of my trouble. I will seek the Lord in my night, my hand stretched out without wearing. My soul refuses to be comforted. Verses 3 and 4, there's that torment. He said, when I remember God, I moan. I moan for God. Charles Spurgeon, whom I uh, is one of my... Uh, uh, I call him one of the old dead guys that are my heroes, was a tremendous, tremendous expositor, preacher, theologian, just a, I mean, began preaching to thousands when he was like 16 years old in the late uh, 19th century, late 1800s. Um, he might be history's most widely read preacher. There's probably more written by Spurgeon available than probably any other Christian author that's ever lived about you know his sermons. Uh, as I said, uh, he uh, was a well-known uh, preacher. In, in this 1865, he sold or was sold in reprints over 25,000 copies every week in the city. Uh, his uh, sermons were translated in 20 different languages, published in newspapers all over the world. And it is estimated that during his lifetime that he would have preached to 10 million People. I, I thought this was interesting. I thought probably we'll never ever see this, but hey, it happened to Spurgeon that occasionally Spurgeon asked his members, now think about this, um, of his congregation not to attend next Sunday's service so that newcomers might find a seat. I think that's where our, some of our people are. They, they are just serving our guests today. I want to believe that, all right? <laughs> Now, why do I tell you that? Because Spurgeon was a dynamite man of God. And you know what? Spurgeon suffered depression. And he writes extensively about it. Um, When I was looking at studying last night, I have his treasury of the Psalms. took him over 20 years to finish. And and it's a marvelous resource of just going through the Psalms. Um, And during those 20 years, it took him to compose and write the treasury of David, which is commentary on the Psalms. He suffered uh, from ill health and, uh, and deteriorated until he uh, passed away and putting that together. He suffered from neuralgia, which is a nerve damage, gout, which left him swollen, red, painful limbs so that he frequently could not walk or even write. He suffered from migraines. And with these physical ears came frightful bouts of depression leading almost to despair of life itself. Some of you suffer with chronic pain. And I'm humbled when I see you uh, on Sundays and I I know that you're in pain. You're always in pain. You're always dealing. And that's a testimony uh, to us um, and many who, who do not suffer in that way of God's grace in your life. But listen to something he said in Psalm, in his treasury of David on this psalm, in the first two verses. He writes this, and that's why I went into telling you about his background a little bit and his personal suffering. He said, some of us know, this is Spurgeon speaking, some of us know what it is, both physically and spiritually, 
to be compelled to use these words in verses 1 and 2 of where it says, I cried aloud to the Lord to hear me. Some of us know what it is to use these words. No relief has been afforded us by the silence of the night. Our bed has been a rack to us. Our body has been in torment, and our spirit has been in anguish. The reason I tell you about Spurgeon is like I told you about Asaph, is to, to get over as believers feeling that somehow that because I suffer this anxiety, I suffer this depression, I suffer this melancholy, I suffer what, whatever terminology you want to use on it, that somehow that must mean that I'm not a Christian. That somehow that means that everybody else, you ever th- think that? I do. Think, boy, I'm the only one that feels this way. But after, you know, being in pastoral ministry about 35 years, I've learned I'm, that's far not the case. Far not the case. Just a side note here, if you ever go back and, and read this, something just to notice is that in the first six verses of Psalm 77, uh, I think I may have counted this using the NIV. It may be uh, a little more, a little less. But you see about 18 times that he's referring to I, me, I, me, and only six times that he refers to God. What does that tell you? When you're in pain, guess what? You see life through that pain, right? You see life through that sadness, through that depression. That's the way you view everything. I mean, when I'm sick, all right, I won't go there. I won't say that, but I might. My wife should never be a nurse, okay? You know, guys, listen, we are a bunch of babies sometimes, right? All right, I better end there. You get the idea. (laughs) That's not her ministry. <laughs> yeah, there's stuff in there if you want to make it, you know, help yourself, whatever. You know, guys, we want, we want to, like our, you know, maybe your mom did, bought, you know, it's the only time I ate uh, sherbet was when I was sick. You know, you want all those little special baby things, right? Even as grown men, but she, she serves me by keeping me into the adult world, and, and so I will give her credit there. But when we're sick, when we're sick and we're feeling bad or disappointed, the job didn't go through, something you, man, you went through the third interview, everything looked great, and then boom, we're going a different, and you just feel like the bottom fell out. I mean, you're not, you're not going to do anything, but you just, you just and, and it's just all about you, and you're not really thinking a lot about God, and, and that's kind of where this guy is at here in the beginning. But we're going to see some change here. Notice, secondly, observation is the thinking, the thinking that hinders the believer. Because a lot of it is the way we think. And I'm not suggesting, as I said earlier, that if we just do more and just kind of have an intellectualized Christianity. But in a lot of cases, it is rooted in how truth is anchored into our life. Do you hear what I'm saying? I mean, if you've, most of, many of you have gone through the transformation study, and so much of the emphasis is about the truth of what God says about me. And my disposition, as all of us tend to be, is we always want to move away from that north point. We want to move away and go away, but we always have to come back and say, but 
What does God say? What does the Word say? And it, it involves our thinking. That's why the Bible puts a high premium on setting your mind on things above and not on things of the earth. The chorus, the hymn, look full into the, you know, uh, uh, now I started a quote. I can't remember it now. But look full into the wonderful face of Jesus and the things of this earth will do what? Go strangely dim. Thinking does have an impact. Look at verse 21 of it. Well, don't look at it, but in Psalm 73, 21, the New Living Translation uh, speaks about how this psalmist's heart was bitter and I was all torn up inside. I mean, when you know, I don't know about you, but sometimes I can get myself into a real thinking frenzy about things that is not accurate. And that's why, again, it's always good to go back and be rooted in Scripture. What does Scripture say? Let me give you some examples. In verses 5 through 9, we see how this is kind of brought out. In verses 5 through 6, I considered, look at this, I can, verse 5 through 6, I considered the days of old, the years long ago. Let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a digilent, digilent, uh, diligent search. The New Living Translation puts it this way. I think of the good old days. He's listening to the oldies station, right? Long since ended when my nights were filled with joyful songs. What's he doing? He's looking with nostalgia at the past. And sometimes we do that as a way to comfort us. Oh, you remember what life was like. You remember how things were like back then. You remember how the church was like this. You remember how life And you know what? It's funny how we usually just kind of remember all the good parts, right? We don't remember all some of those other things. There's a distortion of the past. We relive past successes, the way things were. If we could just go back. But we do that. And even past successes of something I did 10 years ago, 5 years ago, 6 years ago. That's why we need a constant fresh flow of the Scriptures and the Holy Spirit in our life every day. Every day, past successes. I think about those exiles that returned uh, from captivity uh, to rebuild the temple. And what did they do? They were depressed because what? All they could do was remember the former temple. This was just a pitiful scale of what was. They couldn't enjoy what God was doing now. We rehearsed past failures. I love what Paul said in Philippians he said, no, dear brothers and sisters, I have not achieved about perfection, but I focus on this one thing, forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead. That's a distortion of the past. And sometimes verse 7 through 9 suggests that there's a distortion of the present as well. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God, talking about now, has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? One of the things that begin to happen when we sink into anxiety and depressive thoughts is our energies get all wrapped up around how terrible we feel emotionally right now. Our thinking becomes distorted over the present living and our view of God gets altered and distorted. This kind of suggests maybe what he's saying here. Does God really love me? 
Does God really care? Has God forgotten me? I'm such a disappointment with God. He's tossed me aside. He's moved on. You know, I've probably sinned one too many times, and I'm, I'm the one that's dipped the scale of grace too far. If only I prayed more. If only I gave more. If I became a missionary, then God would really love me. I did something real heroic. Something I heard, uh, you remember with Elijah after the Mount Carmel experience where the, you know, if people of God, if Baal is God, let him answer by fire. How many of you, just wave, pretend, you saw the movie, something, all right. Um, the very next scene is he is pleading for his life because Jezebel, Ahab's wife, is out to kill him. And he's, he's, he's gone from the man of the hour and God using him in a powerful way to wondering, God, just kill me. I, I can't take this crazy woman after me. I just, she's killed prophets and she's coming after me. You remember, and I'm going to paraphrase it, where the Lord reminds him that he's not in the, the fire, the mountain, all those, but in the still small voice. How many of you remember that? Now think about this. The still small voice has to do with proximity. You hear a still small voice when you're close. What's the Lord saying? It isn't all the, the mountain and the fire and all that. The still small voice is when God is close to you and he's talking to you and he walks with you and he talks with you. That's the still, small voice. It has to do with proximity. Where is the real present? Where's the real power? It's when you're close to God, Elijah, in my still, small voice. That's what we need. That's where our strength is, is in that closeness to God. And we begin to question, and we go through all these extremes and generalizations and things, you know, and we have ways of distorting life. We, we think if I make one mistake, you know, and I blow it or I fail somebody at church or, or didn't follow through on something, therefore God is totally finished with me. We have these extremes. We have false genera- uh, generalizations. Uh, when one pleasant event happens, we conclude that the same thing will always happen. And so we just fall into that false generalization. You go for a job interview and you're not hired and you walk away and say, it's because I'm worthless and I'm no good. That's an extreme generalization. We have false filters that we see life through. When we're uh, down, we're anxious and we're depressed and we can pick out a negative in any situation. Right? It doesn't matter how good it is. Something is always going to be wrong. Why? Because we're, we have this filter of, of, of anxiety that we're looking through. I mean, somebody can give you 50 compliments, but you're going to remember the one that said, you know, it wasn't so great. Were you tired today? That's all you're going to remember. You know, I don't want a bunch of phony compliments, but, you know, somebody, you know, you had a thousand people walk through and say, oh, man, Spurgeon would be proud. And one guy says, eh, I don't know. I couldn't follow what you were saying. What am I going to do? I'm going to stew on that one comment, right? That's our nature. We Because t- we have a, 
Instead of saying, you know what, it's all to the Lord, it's all, you know, whatever. It's life. False transformations. We turn around a positive situation into a negative. Somebody does something nice for you, yeah, but you know what, they just feel guilty. Just because they missed my birthday to you, so they're really trying to make up, I don't buy it. Right? Do crazy stuff like that. Uh, I like this. We're, we're like spiritual Kreskins. Now, that really dates me. False mind reading. Remember Kreskin, that, you know, that guy that supposedly could read minds, which is a bunch of farce of any of those uh, people. But, you know, meaning this. We somehow can, we have the ability to always tell what someone is thinking about us. Well, they, they don't like me. They think I'm stupid. Someone walks past you in the hallway, and uh, maybe they're deep in thought with their own issue, with their own problem, and they don't say hello to you, and you just say, yeah, yeah, they're, they're, they're this church, a bunch of phonies. Yeah, I don't know what they're thinking. Yeah, maybe what they're thinking is they need you to come alongside of them and, and encourage them, but we're so focused on our own stuff. Uh, false outlook for the future. I've had to remind a couple of my kids, this one, they would go for a job interview or something, and they would always say, well, I'm probably not going to get it. Well, you know, you've already probably predicted your future because you're going into it already defeated because you're already kind of predicting the way things. You're just, you're just pretty sure that that's kind of, remember Thomas when uh, he was one of the disciples, and there's a place in John eleven sixteen where Jesus says, let's go to Jerusalem. And uh, Thomas says, yeah, let's go with him and die with him as well. He's the one that didn't believe Jesus had been resurrected. Uh, false outlook of the future. How about, uh, you know, we see through th- things through a false lens. We view our fears, mistakes, sins, and everything is larger than it actually is. Because that's the pain that we're looking through. Peter, when he denied Jesus, I mean, he was looking through that instead of realizing that Jesus was extending his hand of forgiveness, but Peter couldn't quite see that initially. Here's one, a big one, when we're dealing with depressing thoughts. We make our feelings as the truth. Our feelings determine the facts. Well, how do you know this? Well, I don't, but this is just how I feel. Feelings are deceptive. Have you found that to be the case? I've done it, you've done it, I'll try to, because some of you have to, told me, about, of something that, something some, you did, or something innocent, and because the person didn't respond or didn't act, in a, you know, the way you thought, you immediately went down this whole road of saying, you know what, they, they don't like me, they're rejecting me, I never, I always thought they were a phony, this, that, and the other, and you come to find out, they never got your message. You ever done that? I've done that a lot. Of, you're like, you know, why don't they just answer the text? Come on. Sorry, my battery died. I had to replace it in a couple of days or whatever. But you see where we go with all that? You see what we do? Because I feel this way, it must be fact. Uh, one of the ways that, and I've used this illustration uh, too because it just it fits so many examples, this is a perfect example of this, is that one of the procedures for pilots to uh, maximize their, their, their flying and their licensing and all that is to be able to be trained to fly solely by instruments. That means when the plane goes into the fog or goes in the dark, 
they are trained not to be relying upon what they see or even feel because their bodies can trick them. They're putting that thing in descent because that's the way their body feels when in reality, what are they doing? Because they're disoriented in that condition. They feel their body feels that I'm going up when in reality, the plane is doing what? It's going down. Many suspect that John F. Kennedy Jr. and his death as a pilot was because he was not author or trained in instrument flying. That means you can't see anything. You're going solely by the instruments. The instruments will not lie to you. Well, what is our instrument panel? This is our instrument panel of what God says about me, not how I feel, not all this stuff based upon my own reasoning, not all the what I should have and could have done, all that false thinking that hinders us as a believer. Now, thirdly and last is notice the truth, the truth that brings healing. Jesus said, you will know the truth, and the truth will do what? Paul said in Romans 12, do not be conformed to this world. I like the J.B. Phillips paraphrase. It says, do not let the world squeeze you into its mold. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern, I would say putting truth to the test, that you'll be able to discern... What is the will of God? What is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God? See, that's flying by the instrument panel. Because when truth is applied to my life, and I'm relying upon God's instrument panel for my life, because I know that my feelings and my emotions will deceive me. That was a strategy that Satan used in in Genesis 3. Playing upon false reasoning and, and, and suspicions instead of Adam and Eve being anchored to the truth of God's Word. Did God really say? That's always his strategy. In verse 10 of, chapter, of Psalm 77, the psalmist reads the, or writes this. He said, Then I thought, to this I will appeal, the years when the Most High stretched out his right hand. Now, see what is happening here. There's a transition in this guy's life. The idea is that in his present downcast state of being in the dark, depressed, anxious, whatever, Asaph, the psalmist, says, but I will encourage myself, language that David is attributed to him in 1 Samuel 30, verse 6, when his whole family was plundered and taken. He was out on a military uh, uh, job, and the Amalekites came in and took his family and everybody else's, the soldiers, and, and they were ready to kill David. The Bible says in 1 Samuel 30, verse 6, but David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Not everybody's going to be able to spoon-feed us spiritually. If you don't learn how to strengthen yourself in the Lord, taking that responsibility for your spiritual growth, you're always going to be tethered emotionally to situations and circumstances and people. But Asaph here in verse 10 makes a shift. He's going to change and... And he says, but to this, I am going to 
I'm going to put my eyes and my sight upon the Most High God. Verses 13 through 20, this is a turnaround with this guy. This is a turnaround with this writer, and it can be a turnaround for us as well. In verses 13 through 20, we're not going to read all that, but what we see here, remember I said there was in the beginning, it was me and I 18 times and God about six times. Total shift now, what we see in verses 13 through 20, God is referred to about 21 times and there's no references to me. What does that suggest to us? That maybe there's something in my heart, mind, and thoughts getting higher in who God is and his truth. Remember in Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah had that vision of the holiness of God, and it starts out reading, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. And he had that vision of those angelic beings flying day and night around the throne of God, crying out, Holy, holy, holy. Remember that? Isaiah 6. Read it sometime. He started out depressed because King Uzziah had been a king, say, I don't know, almost 50 years, long time. Bad situation. What changed? He had a greater vision of God who was sovereign and in control. And it was only from that vision of who God is and his sovereignty that he could see his life and see how it's okay because God is still on the throne. He's still there. And so that's what we see here with this psalmist that goes on here. A.W. Tozer says, what comes into our minds in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, he says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Verse 13, what did he think about God? How did this shift change? He said, he's, verse 13, he, ta- he sees God as holy. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God. Psalm 77, verse 13. It's interesting, in, in the King James, it uses the word, how many of you have the King James here? What word does it use instead of Holy. Thy way, O God, is in what? The sanctuary. Because like Isaiah 6, God in his sanctuary, it's a holy place. Okay, So it's really not a conflict here. What is, what is this Asaph saying? Like David, in the midst of where I started out, where I couldn't even hold my eyelids open, I was so depressed, where did I go? I went to the sanctuary of the Lord... And got a vision of God, worshiped God, out of my distress. Well, I can't come to church today. I'm just, I'm just too down. I had a bad week. My friend, that's why you should be among God's people. The Bible says don't let us quit meeting together so that we may encourage one another. The worst thing to do is just to stay home and do nothing. Be among God's people. Well, I don't feel like it. You know what? Are you relying on your strength? Is that a real feeling? Yeah, I understand it's a real feeling. Guess what? Some preachers, not, I can't speak for me, some preachers don't always feel like getting out of bed and preaching on Sunday mornings. I never feel that way. But You know why? Because I need you. 
I need your encouragement. I need your prayer. I need your strength. I need that. You need that. He saw God as holy in his sanctuary. Also, verse 14 speaks about God displaying his power. It says, you are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the people. God is great. He reflected on God, verse 11, he talks about God's deeds and miracles. Verse 12, he talks about his mighty deeds. It leads him to say, what God is so great is our God, verse 13, with the answer, no God at all. There is no God. And to repeat that, Israel's God performs miracles and displays his power. He's saying, God, not only are you holy, but you are a great God. There is none like you. He's recalibrating his heart and mind around who God is. Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not. Thy compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever will be. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have needed, what thy hand has provided. Great is thy faithfulness. See, that's what worship does. Worship is not a passive activity. Read the Old Testament. I mean, the... They were dancing and clapping and clanging cymbals. And read Psalm 150, okay? That wasn't a dull worship service. That was a noisy. Listen, Psalm 150 in the temple, when they were worshiping the Lord, they had complaints, right, about the sound. It's too loud because all those people banging and making joyful noise, all that. Now, I'm not saying we got to do that to please God. Not necessarily. But listen, the Old Testament know, doesn't know anything about a passive worship. It's engaging, lifting your hands, clapping your hands. That's not some charismatic Pentecostal thing. That's a Bible thing. That's a Bible thing because there's something. You know when I need to lift my hands the most? It's when I don't feel like it. And if you see me standing here, Many Sundays, and I'm lifting my hands, I would say eight out of ten times, I'm forcing and saying, God, I, I, I will worship you today. And I'm going to lift my hands. Well, that's not my thing. Well, make it your thing. That's a Bible thing. Nobody, you know, my uncle used to say, just close your eyes and nobody will see you. <laughs> Verse 15. Verse 15, Ashley, if you want to. God is holy, great. But aren't you glad verse 15 reminds us that God is caring? You, with your arm, redeemed your people. The children of Jacob and Joseph. Verse 16 says, when the waters saw you, referring back to the children of Israel coming out of bondage and God opening the path of crossing. It says, when the waters saw you, verse 16, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. You see, the deliverance of Israel was a real historical, actual event. That was real in history. But it's also a metaphor. Maybe just turn down a little bit. It's kind of... The crossing and the deliverance of Israel out of Egypt is a metaphor for the believer, 
for the Christian and our deliverance from bondage of sin and God's redemption. You get that? You understand, right? It, it's that metaphor of what God has done for us in Christ. Today, we celebrated with the Lord's table the elements reminding us of the cross. And just as God's power of caring was demonstrated to Israel, it's demonstrated to us in the gospel. Paul said, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. The gospel isn't just sufficient to save you. The gospel is sufficient to keep you and sustain you. Our hope is in the gospel. Story, I, I just, this pilot who got into this multi-billion dollar jet and going to test it and he's taken off and going to fly it in a test flight and he's not very far up before he, and the way he's strapped in, he can't really do anything. And, and he looks down and he sees a rat gnawing away at the wiring of this billion dollar jet. He physically can't do anything. And he realizes that if that rat starts eating away and all that, he said, that plane, who knows what's going to happen? That thing's going to spin out. Of, I mean, it, what, the, what could happen? But this was a train pilot. You know what he did? He put his oxygen mask on, pulled that thing back, and took that thing as high as it can go. And when he landed the plane, what do you think the condition of that rat was? Dead. Why? Suffer, he didn't have any oxygen. We go high with God. You suffocate all the rats gnawing away at your life. Right? Just, just, you just take away the oxygen. Because as long as I'm complaining and griping and mumming, you, know, you know what? That's just feeding the rats around me. Pull the throttle back and just get higher with God. Get into his presence, commune with him, talk with him, worship him, make that a daily routine. Because we need that.